No, neither of you. God forgive us for our lives. Uh, Roberta Hessenis has uh, led a remarkable life. When I first met her, she was new to the faculty at Fuller Seminary. She went on from there to be uh, president for 10 years uh, at uh, uh, Eastern College in St. David's, Pennsylvania. Uh, one full decade, and then uh, went on from there to be uh, the pastor of the uh, First Presbyterian Church of Solana Beach. She's been on the board of World Vision for about 30 years, and uh, 25. Okay, I'm sorry. She started when she was 15. And, uh, but anyway, <laughs> she uh, most recently is now the international minister for World Vision International, which means she travels, really literally travels the globe, ministering to some 14,000 people on the staff of World Vision. Uh, she's a pastor for these folks. And uh, when you hear her speak, you'll know why she was asked to do this uh, very important job. Uh, I, I love Roberta Hestinus. She's had a tremendous impact on my life. Uh, I admire her, and I just like her. She's just fun to have around, and I'm delighted to have you meet her. Let's welcome her to Westmont College. I'm excited to be here. You make me homesick for Eastern. And I want to tell you about the first time I went to the Third World. I went to the Ansokia Valley in Ethiopia in 1984, long time ago now. And when I went into that valley, it was a valley of death and dust and hopelessness. The pictures of the famine in Ethiopia, which threatened the death of two million people, had spread across the world. And I knew I wanted to do something. As a Christian, I wanted to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in some kind of way. And I was asked if I would go to the Ansokia Valley. The Sisters of Charity, Mother Teresa's sisters, had asked World Vision if we would come into that valley. They said that there were so many people dying with no hope of life that they had all of their energy taken in ministering to the dying. And would World Vision come? and try to help save some and bring some hope into that situation. And so I steeled my heart and went by myself, first time on the continent of Africa. And standing in the middle of Ansokia Valley where there were 60,000 people, and not a drop of running clear water, not a sprig of green leaf, nothing but dirt and dust and death. And I have said to myself that I will not cry because tears can be a sentimental luxury. It's possible to look at the world and feel bad, but feeling bad doesn't change anything. And I had steeled myself not to cry, 
But then came the day when I was helping to weigh the babies in a sling, which we use around the world with malnourished children. And I was handed a child who, I was asked how old did I think this child was, and I said, well, a year, 18 months, and I handed the child to be weighed, and the nurse said to me, this child is five years old. And then, about an hour later, I was taken to the place where the tiny bodies were wrapped in white shrouds and were piled one upon another upon another. And I confess to you that I wept. I wept. The situation seemed so hopeless, so difficult, so painful. I had an email this week from a friend of mine whose name is Judy. And Judy said, I need to ask for your help. Judy's a woman who has been involved as a laywoman in a ministry of World Vision called Women of Vision. And it's laywomen who band together in the name and love of Christ to make a difference in the world. And she said, I was in a Bible study this week. And as I was leading the Bible study, all of a sudden I found myself sobbing. And I couldn't stop. And as we talked about it in our group, what we realized was that the events going on in the world, as well as the things that were going on in our own lives, were wiping us out. And that we were functioning on one level, but at another level, there's deep pain. In fact, she said it feels like a cold, dark hole. And right now it just doesn't feel like there's any way out of it. These are people who have offered themselves to care. And yet the events in the Middle East, events in a project where they are working in Peru, their awareness that in the world today there are still 29,000 children dying every single day of preventable causes of hunger and malnourishment and disease, children that should not die and do not need to die, and yet the reality. And she wrote and she said, can you come and help us? By the way, I wonder, do you ever feel like this yourself? I hope not, she said, because it feels so bad. And as I pondered her email before I responded, I realized, I knew, that over my years as a Christian, that the more I have seen and touched and felt and known about the brokenness of this fallen world, the more I have seen signs of hope 
but also I have seen things that could lead me, that have at times brought me into deep, cold, hard places. Because the suffering goes so deep and is so real, the rising tide of violence. I have colleagues and friends who work in the West Bank. And one of them sent me an email about something that he watched with his own eyes as he's attempting to help and to bring some food into a village that has been closed off. And he saw a child wander out of the home where the parents had been keeping and the family had stayed inside and this child had somehow gotten out the door and had been shot. And then he watched as someone went to rescue that child to try and get help, perhaps, and that person was shot as well. And there are times like that. My friend Judy is not only struggling with what's going on in the larger world, she's also been living for a number of years with a reality in her own family. Her son was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. And she and her husband have been living with that reality, with a son that they love. And yet, so often the American way is to take a look at things that are broken and try to fix them, to take a look at problems and try to immediately solve them. We've all learned our methodologies for analyzing problems, to describe a problem and then break it down into its component parts and analyze all of it and then generate a series of hypotheses about solutions and then do the risks and benefits of the solutions and then choose one and go to work on it and solve the problem. But so often in the reality of this fallen, broken world, alienated from God, and people consequently alienated from each other, there are things that seem insolvable, that do not give themselves to quick or instantaneous fixes. Judy's son, Mark, is not going to be fixed. There's a reality that they are living with and will continue to live with. As I pondered this, I realized again that there is a section of scripture that is very often ignored in much of the church, unknown to many Christians, which is extremely helpful to me at times like this at places that feel hopeless and have in them a sense of darkness or even despair. And that section of Scripture, those parts of Scripture that speak to our condition in these kinds of places are called lamentations. Lamentations. And these exist in a number of places in the Scripture. There are psalms of lamentations where the psalmist in his agony cries out to God and says, God, why 
Are you so far from helping me? You remember that even Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why? And he expresses his sense of aloneness and forsakenness. Lamentations are a part of the literature of the scripture which captures the cry of the human heart with honesty and depth and realism. These are texts that are not necessarily fun to read on Sunday morning. I don't know small Bible study groups or dorm groups that have gotten together to study these passages of lamentations, and yet I have personally found that they have been very helpful to me as I have journeyed as a servant of Jesus in this world. I want to read to you some verses from the book of Lamentations, which is actually a whole book of these things that appears following the prophet Jeremiah. And let me just give you a sense of the honesty and reality of this. The lamenter says, I have cried until the tears no longer come. There's a kind of crying that can be a relief and a release. And there's a kind of crying that can come out of an agony that comes to exhaustion and emptiness. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit poured out as I see what has happened. Little children and tiny babies are fainting and dying in the streets. Mama, we want food, they cry, and then collapse in their mother's arms. Their lives ebb away like the life of a warrior wounded in battle. There is much that is beautiful and wonderful in our world, but there is also that which is the shadow and the sign and the reality of evil, which calls for lament. In all the world, he cries, has there ever been such sorrow? And then he turns and he says this, cry aloud, not into the emptiness that does not hear. Cry aloud, not into hopelessness, which has nothing to pull us forward toward a positive future. But rather, the lamenter says, cry aloud before the Lord. The Lord who hears our cry and knows our sorrow, who's attentive to us. He goes on and he says, rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lift up your hands to him in prayer. Plead for the children as they faint with hunger. In the streets. And then the lament again. See them lying in the streets, young and old, 
boys and girls killed by the swords of the enemy. I am grateful that scripture tells the truth. Not only the truth of the hope that we have in the suffering and dying and risen Lord Jesus Christ, but the hope of the reality that God knows and hears our cry, the truth of the agony of our suffering and our despair that comes at times and threatens to overwhelm us like a flood. Here's what he says in chapter 3. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. There are seasons in our lives, seasons of joy and seasons of loss. And in the seasons of loss, whether our own loss, the loss of loved ones, the loss of people we care about, or the losses in a world that God so loves, I will never forget this awful time I grieve over my loss. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Lamentations, the lamenter says this, Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. Now the section that comes after this is actually put into a number of different praise songs and we often sing these words with enthusiasm with no idea that the context for these words is a context of a suffering world and a hurting heart. But the lamenter says, I still dare to hope. To hope is an act of courage and faith, not to give in to despair, but rather to turn to the living Lord. And he says, I dare to hope when I consider this. What is it he considers? Now hear these words. The unfailing love of the Lord never ends. By his mercies, we have been kept from complete destruction. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. And therefore, I will hope in him. Our inheritance is not death. God's will for the world is not evil but good. God's purpose in creation is shalom, not suffering. And God is working his purpose out in mercy and faithfulness. The Lord is our inheritance. Therefore, we can, we will, We dare to hope in him. The Lord is wonderfully good to those who wait for him and seek him. So it is good to wait 
I hate waiting. I absolutely hate waiting. I have a high-speed internet connection because I can't stand waiting. I want it now. And when I go online, I don't want to wait for little five green lines to come up. I want it now. I hate waiting. And yet in the midst of the world that God loves and has placed us in as instruments of his love, so it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Waiting is not passivity. We can wait while we are active and giving and serving and loving. But we wait in hope because God is the God of our salvation. I had not been back to Ansokia Valley in Ethiopia until last year. I'd been several times during the famines, but I hadn't been back in the last decade. And when I went back to Ansokia Valley this time, I remembered a sign of hope when I was there during the famine. And then I saw the healing of that valley. A valley of death is now a valley of green life, a valley of hope, a valley where there had been no church, now has churches where the name of Jesus is worshipped. And I watched people dancing and singing before the Lord in this valley of Ansokia. And I remembered the sign of hope when I'd been in Ansokia the first time. I was in what was called the hospital. It was actually a tent spread over four poles to shield from the sun. And I stood in the back as a young nurse with her back to me, stood hour by hour as babies and children were handed to her and she attempted to save their lives. And every once in a while there was a heartbroken moment where it was too late. But most of the time, hour after hour, she was able through her skill and her resources to bring these children back and to begin the process which would result in their being saved, their being brought from death unto life. And she labored with hard commitment. And finally, someone came in and they said to her, Sally, you need to stop. And only at that moment did she turn around. Now, I need to now tell you a story. My daughter had a roommate in college. Her roommate went to a Christian college. Her roommate was so full of despair and discouragement about things that had gone wrong in her family and things that had gone wrong in her own life and her own sense that there was no hope that she had gone into the bathroom and swallowed everything in the medicine cabinet and my daughter found her unconscious in a deep coma on the floor of the bathroom having tried to kill herself. And my daughter called me and told me that this had happened And I said, what are you going to do? And she said, the doctor tells us that she needs hope. And so we have made a pact, the other girls in the house and I, and we have decided we're going to love her into wholeness. We're going to let her know she matters, she counts, she has a future. We're going to love her so she knows the love of Jesus. And she reported in over the next couple of months, and then I didn't hear any more until I was standing in Ansokia 
in the midst of the darkness. And the nurse turned around and she said to me, Dr. Hestinus, what are you doing here? And I said to her, Sally, what are you doing here? And it was my daughter's roommate. And she had been loved into wholeness. And over our simple meal, she said to me, I'm here to share the love. We lament, but we live in hope as we share the love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you know our pain, our loneliness, our anguish at the world, and sometimes at things going on in our own lives. But thank you that you are a God of hope and resurrection. Fill us with your hope as we trust in you and as we share your love. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Go in peace.